We're back again with series four of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts, taking us through Dante's Purgatorio. We left Dante and Virgil last time rushing off with the newly arrived souls, rushing to the mountain of cleansing, no time to lose on this important and glorious mission. It seems a little chaotic, but that whole company of newly arrived seems to run helter-skelter towards the mountain so that they are scattered across the whole area. This means that Dante and Virgil come up to the mountain, just the two of them, not in company with the group they have just met. You let go of one group and move on to another. Virgil is disturbed, however, reproaching himself for having allowed Dante to listen to Casella's beautiful rendition of his, Dante's, love poem. It was wrong to do that, as Cato had made clear. But Virgil's not apparently too depressed for long. He slows the pace, which allows Dante to look around him, especially up at that mountain, the highest in the world. And then he looks down and sees that, with the sun rising up behind him, his shadow is stretching out on the ground before him. But wait, there's only one shadow. Where's Virgil's? In sudden panic, Dante turns to see if Virgil has, for some reason, abandoned him. Well, yes, Virgil is there, of course. Why are you getting so worked up, he asks. Don't you trust that I'm staying here to guide you? Oh, my shadow. No, don't expect a shadow from me. All of us souls without bodies are not thick enough to cast a shadow, even though we're able to feel pain and heat and cold. I know that may not make sense, but it's just one of the mysteries of God's creation, beyond human reason to understand. After all, only a fool would think that with our feeble human reason we can work it all out. Remember those Greek philosophers we saw in limbo, Aristotle and Plato and others, who thought that reason, rather than faith, could show them all truth? Remember that grief they felt as their longing for truth was ultimately frustrated? And here Virgil shuts up and, and, and looks disturbed. Of course, he's one of those, like the Greek philosophers, who never knew about the power of faith, one of those dwelling in limbo, relying on rational thinking only, not suffering, but always feeling incomplete. But now a new problem presents itself. They have arrived at the foot of the mountain, but the cliff is so steep that it's impossible to ascend. How do they get up there? Virgil doesn't know, and stands there pondering how to find the right way up, while Dante is absorbed in looking up at the places he's going to have to encounter very soon. But something attracts Dante's eye over to the left, a group of souls moving very slowly towards them. Look, master, Dante says to Virgil, if you can't find a way up, here come some people who might be able to help us. The sight of them relieves Virgil, who suggests that since they're moving so slowly, it might be a good idea for Dante and him to go over towards them instead of waiting until they arrive. Don't give up your hope, says Virgil, not giving up hope himself, since help has just arrived when it was needed. The two of them walk, Dante says, about a thousand steps towards the group, and still the group seems far away, about as far as a strong arm could throw. 
<laughs> this detail baffles me. There's no way I can picture this. How far can a strong arm throw? And is it throwing something small and light or something heavy? Well, never mind. They're far away, but close enough for what comes next. The group of souls, on seeing these two approaching them, stop and all gather together against the cliff wall like men trying to figure out what's going on. Virgil addresses them, You blessed souls who have achieved your home in heavenly peace, tell us where we can find a place where we can start climbing up this mountain. We're anxious to get started and not waste time. They are all like a flock of sheep, all copying what their leader is doing, standing there waiting. The ones in front move forward, modest and solemn, but when they notice Dante's shadow, they, they, they stop and take a few steps back, and the others behind them do just the same. Virgil is bold, and before they can ask, he explains that, yes, this is a living body. Come here with heaven's consent. That eases the soul's puzzlement, and they all, apparently in a kind of unison, tell Virgil to turn around and continue in the direction that they are traveling in. And so, having first encountered the community of souls newly arrived, Virgil and Dante now join this other group of souls, though they don't yet know who these people are. As they're walking along, one of these souls calls out for Dante to turn around and see if he can recognize him from back in the world. So Dante looks and sees that the man is blonde, handsome, and aristocratic, but his form is distorted by a gash that has split one of his eyebrows. N no, I'm afraid I don't recognize you, says Dante, at which point the soul points to a deep wound on his chest and begins a long speech that goes on for 34 lines right to the end of the canto. This man reveals himself to be the shade of the great Manfred, one of the most prominent and controversial figures in the generation before Dante. I'll discuss his importance in a minute, but first let's hear what he has to say. Dante expects his readers to know that Manfred died in the Battle of Benevento, and as someone excommunicated would have been expected to go to hell. We have to know who Manfred was to understand his opening remarks. I'm the grandson of the Empress Constance, he tells Dante, and then asks him, when he goes back to the world, to go to his daughter, who's now the mother of both the King of Spain and the King of Sicily, and to make sure she knows the true story of what happened when he died. He had been struck twice in the battle, as we've seen, on the face and in the chest, and he knew that he was dying. Just before he died, he turned his thoughts to the God of forgiveness, begging pardon for all his many sins. His body was buried near the site of the battle, but later the Pope ordered his bones to be removed from church lands to a spot where they were exposed to rain and wind. Cursed by the church, Manfred was nevertheless not entirely abandoned by heaven, since, as long as the soul shows sorrow for the life led, as long as there is repentance, even at the last minute, there is forgiveness and salvation. And so Manfred's soul was saved. But now, along with the other souls that had cut themselves off from the church, or been cut off, this is called excommunication, 
he has to wait at the foot of Mount Purgatory for a period of thirty years for every year spent cut off from the church. Unless, and here is a condition that is to be repeated as Dante goes along, unless faithful people still alive pray for his soul, which will reduce the length of time he waits below here. And so, he concludes, Dante knows how to please him. When he returns to the living world, he should tell his daughter Constance of his position, so that her prayers may effectively relieve his long wait. And that word about the efficacy of prayers for the dead ends the canto. The canto is divided into three sections. We start focused just on Dante and Virgil, and then we expand to see the whole crowd of excommunicated souls slowly making their way around the foot of the mountain, and then we narrow the focus just on Manfred with his long speech. Dante exclaims that he could never have come this far without Virgil's help, and then he notices Virgil's self-reproach, and then, when he sees only his own shadow in front of him, he suddenly panics at the thought that Virgil has deserted him. <laughs> what does that suggest? Does Dante think that, condemning himself for having done the wrong thing a few minutes before, Virgil has suddenly decided he's not up to the job and has gone away? Or does Dante think that Virgil's task was only to take him through hell and that his mission has been completed? Whatever it is exactly that he's thinking, it's an indication of Dante's insecurity at this point, here in this new strange land, a place where everyone but him will have no shadow. And does this suggest something more? Think about the significance of the shadow. There's that Jungian sense of our shadow selves, those parts of us we suppress, that we hide away, feeling guilty or ashamed of. Only Dante, still alive, carries this shadow self, but no one else does. There will be no shadow selves in this region, the whole self is exposed now, exposed and, after a period of necessary pain, healed. The light shines completely through these beings, leaving nothing hidden. Well, Virgil has not disappeared, of course, and Dante's panic leads Virgil to explain the nature of his afterlife body, and presumably all the bodies they have met in hell and will meet here in purgatory. But as usual in Dante, the explanation is roundabout. What Virgil wants to say, first of all, is that he no longer has the properties of a solid body. W well, we, we knew that already, didn't we? His body, his real body, his physical body, lies interred back in Italy. But listen to how he puts this. I'll use the Hollander's translation. Evening has fallen there, where the body that cast my shadow while I lived is buried. Taken from Brindisi, Naples holds me now. <laughs> it's a little difficult. Let me read it again. Evening has fallen there where the body that cast my shadow while I lived is buried. Taken from Brindisi, Naples holds me now. Notice here how powerfully and economically Dante brings together in one image the themes of time, sun, body, shadow, and location. Major themes brought together briefly like a recurring motif in a piece of music. But why mention all this? 
we must read with the assumption that no detail is gratuitous. First of all, this roundabout image expands the moment from a small discussion at the foot of purgatory into a global scope, as Dante expects us to work out the geographical details. Our notes in modern editions do that for us, of course. What he's saying is that while it is early morning here in the Southern Hemisphere, it's evening in Italy. So far have they traveled, but they're still connected, if only in thought, to their starting point. But there's a little more here, too. Virgil does not just say that his body is buried in Italy, or even, more specifically, in Naples. He adds that his body had been removed to Naples from Brindisi. I think Dante must assume that his readers know that Virgil died at the port of Brindisi and was buried there, and that the Emperor Augustus, knowing the respect due to his greatest poet, had the body disinterred and buried with great honor in, or rather, near Naples. We should keep this in mind when we get to the final section of the canto and learn that Manfred, the great political leader, had his body disinterred too, by order not of the emperor but of the pope. But this wasn't so that he could be buried with greater honor, but so that his bones could be cast out into nowhere land, unwept, unhonored, and unknown, in Walter Scott's phrase. But here in Purgatory, it's something of a topsy-turvy world, and while Virgil's body is buried with honor, his soul must reside in limbo in the outskirts of hell, while the excommunicated Manfred, enemy of the Catholic Church, bones bleaching in the open air, can nevertheless achieve salvation. Virgil is quite aware of these contrasted destinies as he stands there now with his head bowed. This is appropriate for the poet who celebrated, if that's the right word, the lacrimae rerum, the sadness inherent in human life. Again the contrast, Virgil's sadness and the divine joy, the bright light shining down on them now this new morning. In fact, it's Easter Sunday of all things. Virgil and the others in limbo, as we discussed in Going Through Hell, represent for us that part of human life without the light of faith in a redeeming love shaping the world, and thus without joy. We've strayed a bit from Virgil's main point about the insubstantial bodies the souls have after death. They cast no shadow, but they can feel pain, heat, and cold, and obviously, though he does not mention it, they can see and hear and speak. How, how does this work? Do they have physical bodies or not? <laughs> well, the answer is that there is no answer, at least no answer that human beings can comprehend. It's one of the mysteries of the world that we should be content to perceive and accept, but not try to figure out why. Or as Virgil puts it, we should accept the quia, and, at least for these things, not waste time with the quid. <laughs> this, this quia and quid are scholastic terms from medieval philosophy, which, which we won't go into, you'll be glad to know. We won't go into them, but we'll just let Hollander explain it which he does, briefly and clearly, as the advice to accept things as they are, without attempting to understand their causes. Now that might not sit well with us in the scientific age, 
where our chief concern is to work out why things happen so we can adjust them to the way we like. We want to find out the cause of a disease so we can work on a cure. We want to discover why a roof leaked so we can prevent it happening again. But here in Purgatory we're dealing with a different, non-practical level of experience, where what is important is just to notice what lies before us or within us, and accept that this is present. And in the noticing comes, in a way we can't predict, the healing. It's hard to adjust to this way of looking at things, and that's why these souls have to spend so much time adjusting to their new condition. These souls, as we'll discuss in a minute, were excommunicated when alive, but mythically they represent all of us as we make a shift, even for a few minutes, from, from trying to take personal control of what's going on to letting go of the things beyond us and opening to what is presented to us. As, in Leonard Cohen's words, we must leave everything that we cannot control. Back to Virgil, who is looking down and within himself, wondering what they should do next, while Dante is looking up and around him, and it's he who notices that crowd of souls coming slowly towards them. It's he who takes the lead now and tells Virgil what to do. We probably should remember that although Virgil had, according to the myth, travelled earlier down through the depths of hell, and had written about the underworld in the Aeneid, he has never before been here at Mount Purgatory, and so all this is as strange to him as to Dante. And yet, as we'll see as we go on, Virgil has been provided with more knowledge than we might expect. The company that Dante and Virgil meet up with is described as a flock of sheep. <laughs> we might be a little taken aback. These first souls we see in place in purgatory are described as mindless sheep, just copying the action of each other, no apparent individuality. Is that what salvation's all about? It's not what we today would consider an interesting state to strive for, is it? We can accept the fact that sheep, or more properly lambs, became the Christian symbol of humility, following what they're told or where they're led. Does this make us fear, though, that with everyone acting like sheep, this is going to be a boring story? We might think so, but let's see what happens. The sheep is another image illustrating the quia and the quid. The souls have to practice giving up their ego drive to do their own thing and learn to be part of a flock, accepting what is there, consenting to it. We'll watch as these souls move out of their flocky identity to grow into their true selves, now incorporated into the larger community. We can take this mythic image further. These souls, we soon learn, are the souls of those who were excommunicated, which means they had broken away from the larger community as though they individually knew better than the larger community, where a variety of people had come together from all over the world and over the centuries to share their understanding of the world and, of course, to help each other. But these souls here considered their own version of the truth or their own choice of morals to be superior to the communities. They went off on their own, and thus they disqualified themselves from membership in the community. Excommunication is the poetic symbol for all those who have willfully cut themselves off from the larger community. 
of course, the way it works in the real world, this community understanding, especially if it's a religious institution, can be wrong, or the way it is applied can be not just wrong but harmful, biased or interested in preserving power over people rather than in promoting the deepest truths. But ideally, the Church represents a universal, loving, supportive community. Breaking off from it or having it declared that you have broken yourself off it is to divorce yourself from the rest of humanity. I suppose we can see this in such ordinary things as people who refuse to, say, to join in New Year's Eve parties because they think these parties are stupid and meaningless, or those who won't vote in an election because they think all political action is futile. Or what's worse, though a smaller example, those who sit silent during a dinner party because the conversation just runs round and round commonplace observations about the weather or the children or, heaven help us, the grandchildren. These people have cut themselves off from the community. They have broken away from heavenly joy. They have made themselves, as we say, excommunicated from the community around them. But it's not hopeless. Through, through turning back, even just momentarily, these individuals Dante meets have in fact saved their souls and are now back in the fold. But they don't just automatically rejoin, and that's that. They need time to readjust to putting aside their self-will and their idiosyncrasies and submitting to being part of the group. And thus, they all practice walking slowly together as a group, giving up their individual will to the group's will. Salvation, we're reminded, is not an individual event. Heavenly joy is a shared thing, and the first thing that individualists need to do is to reconcile themselves to joining the group. And then we come to the figure of Manfred, who smiles as he speaks, unlike any of the souls we'd met in hell, none of whom smiled or was glad of anything, and none of whom willingly identified themselves in the way Manfred does. And who was Manfred? Any edition will provide notes about the historical details. All we need to say here is that he was a major player in the power politics of southern Italy in the generation before Dante. He was the illegitimate son of the Emperor Frederick II and eventually became King of Sicily through nefarious means, it was rumoured. He was handsome and popular, and apparently, apparently lived a hedonistic life, full of pleasure and culture, without regard for the church. His father, we learnt in the Inferno, landed in the circle of the heretics. He further distanced himself from the church by drawing up military alliances with Saracen forces, that is, Muslim infidels, enemies of the church. For this reason, and because the Pope feared his rising political power, the Pope excommunicated him, and in a final attempt to oust him from the considerable lands he claimed as his own, the Pope called in French forces. This led to the Battle of Benevento, which we heard about in the canto about the heretics in the Inferno, and which brought about the crushing defeat of the Ghibelline faction that Manfred had put himself at the head of. And in this battle Manfred was killed with the wounds he shows to Dante here. And as we learn, though this of course is not historical fact, 
Manfred repented in the hour of death and thus saved himself. We ought to be aware of how scandalous it must have seemed for Dante to show, especially this early in the poem, that the church is not supreme. Souls can get to heaven even if they are excommunicated. And for those who think that Dante delighted in putting his enemies in hell, we see that he has saved Manfred, who, as a ghibelline, belonged to the party Dante opposed. Even Dante's enemies can be saved. Nevertheless, Manfred shows he is not entirely freed from his sins. He shows an element of pride in asking Dante if he recognizes him. Uh, of course you recognize who I am, right? Well, he's, he's aware of his celebrity status. But is he not aware that Dante was only one year old when he died? Does he care? I, I think he still has a long way to go. And why show off his wounds like this? The last person we saw do this was Mohammed, displaying his torso sliced open. Maybe that reminds us of Manfred's alliances with Muslim forces. Or maybe Manfred just wants to show how gallant he was. Apparently, when he saw that the battle was not going his way, he rushed into the middle of the fight where he was killed, and, and where he was buried, with all the soldiers marching past, each one placing a stone on the grave. That was before the Pope ordered the body dug up and reburied outside papal territory. Manfred is still attached to the events of his previous life. After recounting the story of his final moments, Manfred asks Dante to tell his daughter that his soul has in fact been saved. She should now start praying for his soul, her prayers, or anybody's prayers, having the power to shorten his time waiting at the foot of the mountain. Here, early in the poem, Dante introduces the concept of the efficacy of praying for the dead, which will reappear as we move through the poem. What is this all about? Pray for the dead and the dead will pray for you? The Catholic doctrine here is that just as our prayers for one another here in the living world can be effective, so they can also be effective when we pray for the souls suffering in purgatory. We are linked to these souls. We're all part of the same company, and we have a role to play. That's the doctrine, which Dante has turned into a myth by dramatizing these events and images. Can we get behind the myth? We want to ask how this appears in our everyday life. I don't want to go into what it all means when we say we pray for others, but let's just say that when we give up our ego desires and think of someone or something we are concerned about, we're entering a special, let's say, sacred space, which can resonate outwards and, like all energy resonance, have an effect on the world. Yes, a strange way of talking, but I think each of us can recognize some moments in our lives when we've experienced this. And I'm not talking about that sentimental, sanctimonious catchphrase, my thoughts and prayers are with you. Those are just words. I'm talking, almost literally, about thoughts and prayers actually being with someone else. And then let's consider that these souls in purgatory are mythic beings, poetic images Dante is presenting to us, representing some aspect of the life we know now. These souls being purged and cleansed represent each of us in our life here on earth. When we turn from our ego, turn from our inner hell, we could say, 
and thus turning is the repentance, and in turning comes the healing of the stains our ego has sullied us with. You get that? This can become our purgatory moment. So what then? Let's take an example. I, I have, let's suppose, I have a friend whose temper is very short, especially when money is mentioned. But when, for whatever reason, it, it doesn't matter, that friend becomes aware of this short temper, he can be open at some level to my thoughts and prayers. I can then think of that friend without any self-interest on my part, simply wishing for the best for the person that I care about, and sit for a minute, that's all it takes, holding that friend in my heart. And as I do this, I not only strengthen my own feelings towards the friend and can thus be more helpful when needed, but I also transmit this compassionate resonance. My friend may or may not feel this, but it's there, and it can help that friend heal that short temper more readily. That's how my thoughts and prayers really work, and Manfred's plea for his daughter to pray for his repentant soul in purgatory is the mythic image of this. <laughs> All right, that's a little heavy, but it's where Dante's leading us, I think, and although I know I know many people who would not subscribe to this kind of invisible movement between people. I think this explanation comes with less cultural baggage than the Catholic doctrine itself. And of course it works the other way too. People praying for us as we turn and try to do better will help us amend more quickly. Yes, we can do it alone, but why not as part of this larger community that we have consented to be part of? I think that's quite enough for this one episode. Let's take a deep breath and move on next to Canto 4, where we'll find Dante and Virgil at last beginning their climb and meeting a new group of souls with further clarification about this business of thoughts and prayers for others. See you there next time. <laughs>